Welcome to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast, a weekly conversation about mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. For more information or to find a therapist in your area, visit our website at therapyforblackgirls.com. While I hope you love listening to and learning from the podcast, it is not meant to be a substitute for a relationship with a licensed mental health professional. Hey, y'all. Thanks so much for joining me for session 218 of the Therapy for Black Girls podcast. We'll get into the episode right after a word from our sponsors. Nowadays, a lot of these big companies pretend to care about our communities and issues with nothing more than lip service. State Farm is the opposite. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help educate in financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow Black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something they care deeply about. They want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Farm understands that representation alone doesn't mean authenticity, that it takes a good neighbor to sponsor programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, and to fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of black and brown youth that to date participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey ladies, it's Dr. Joy. As women, we put our hearts into everything. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month, and it's time to focus on our heart health. Release the Pressure wants to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. During High Blood Pressure Education Month, let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first, and learn more about their heart health. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. That's iHeartRadio.com RTP. I've seen quite a few videos on social media recently of young women soliciting help in finding the perfect dress for graduation. Might I suggest you add Macy's to your list? They have lots of options for dresses that will transition perfectly from under your gown to that incredible dinner with family after the ceremony. Check out options from brands like On 34th, Michael Kors, DKNY, and many more. Shop at Macy's.com or in-store. You may have heard that most people who are Black have O-type blood. O is commonly needed for emergencies. But did you know one in three of us is a match for patients with sickle cell disease? Regardless of blood type, every day our blood saves lives and eases the pain of those living with sickle cell. Donate blood at Red Cross to help save a life. Black excellence is in our blood. Visit redcrossblood.org slash ourblood to make an appointment now. Buying your first car can make you feel like a superstar as it's a big purchase, but it can take time to get there. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Whether you're trying to manage your money or trying to run a business, Intuit gives you the confidence to take control of your finances so you can live your best life. 
Intuit helps you take control of your finances through products like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. Watching reality TV shows are one of my favorite pastimes. Some of my favorites have been Trading Spaces, Early Seasons of the Real World, and of course, The Real Housewives. It's been really interesting to see how programming in this space has developed over time and to follow the commentary. And what has been most interesting is the way the space has been accommodating, or not so much, to Black women cast members and Black audiences. To help us explore this world, today I'm joined by Dr. Raquel Gates. Dr. Gates is an associate professor of film at Columbia University and the author of Double Negative, The Black Image and Popular Culture. She received her Ph.D. from Northwestern University's Department of Screen Cultures and holds an M.A. in Humanities from the University of Chicago, as well as a B.S. in Foreign Service from Georgetown University. Currently, she's working on her second book, titled Hollywood Style and the Invention of Blackness, for which she was awarded an Academy Film Scholar Grant by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences in 2020. Her writing appears in both academic and popular publications such as the New York Times, the Los Angeles Review of Books, and Film Quarterly. She lives in Brooklyn with her partner and two sons. Dr. Gates and I chatted about the complicated nature of Black women's representation on reality TV, how audiences often respond to majority Black casts, the stereotypes that are both upheld and dispelled through reality TV, and the changes that often happen between seasons one and two of a show. If there's something that resonates with you while enjoying our conversation, please share it with us on social media using the hashtag TBG in session. Here's our conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Gates. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I am so happy to have you here. Reality TV is like one of my favorite things to enjoy. So I love to talk to, you know, people who are researching in this area. So can you start by telling us a little bit about what fascinates you about media studies and how you got into studying reality TV? Sure. So what fascinates me about studying media, but also film, is that I think that film and television are these sources of connection between people. And I think that, you know, sometimes in spite of our backgrounds, sort of our shared experiences with different movies or different television shows allow us to tap into something and sort of form a site of human connection. I also think that sometimes we can work out our own feelings and experiences vicariously through watching film and television. And I think that's where reality television is particularly unique because it's so much about sort of daily lived experience. And of course, that's like played for drama and, you know, for comedy and all kinds of things. But I think that at its core, reality television in particular, you know, the draw is this sort of very real connection with the cast members. And I think that's a huge source of pleasure for the audience. For me, how did I get into studying reality television? So I'm, by training, I'm a film and media studies scholar, and I'm also a fan of reality television. And, you know, there's a point where, at least for me, when I was sort of reading, you know, like, 
newspaper articles or just sort of listening to the ways that people were talking about reality television, it always seemed to sell the genre kind of short. And it seemed to presume a lack of sophistication on the part of the audiences, which are primarily women. And for me, a light bulb went off because that's typically what happens when you are talking about genres that are primarily enjoyed by audiences who are not like straight white men. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I really wanted to sort of turn a segment of my research to reality television to really sort of get at the nuances of what make it so pleasurable, but also I would argue so powerful and so enduring. Mm -hmm. So it feels like the genre really has kind of expanded, right? Like I think I'm guessing you probably know this better than I do. Like is the real world kind of like our first real foray into reality TV? So can you talk just about like how the genre has expanded beyond stuff like real world? Sure. I mean, people always cite the real world, right? Like that 1991, 1992 moment. I, I mean, I think of that as like the dawn of the contemporary era of reality television. But if we're thinking about the nuts and bolts of what makes something reality television, like the idea that it's unscripted, the idea that we're getting like a behind the scenes look at either a person or a community that we don't normally get, then I'd argue you have to actually go back to the 1950s, right? And something like um, Edward Murrow's Person to Person, which was a television show where the journalist would, he'd go visit the home of celebrities and get this sort of candid interview where they would talk about various things in terms of their personal life and their in their professional lives, you have to think about something like Candid Camera, that television show, right, which is about playing oh, yes. jokes on unsuspecting people. You could also think about all of the game shows that became really popular in the 1950s. There's a television show that I like to teach in my reality TV class called Queen for a Day, which was, you know, this show where women would come on and they would sort of talk about you know, all of the things that were going wrong in their lives and if like the audience thought their sob stories were pathetic enough, they would win something, they'd win a prize. And it's clearly a predecessor to something like Extreme Home Makeover, you know, which is a show that we're more familiar with now. You know, I'd also throw out the film sociological experiments that happened like in the 60s and the 70s, the Stanford prison experiment, things like that. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, one of my favorite examples that I like to teach, JFK's filmed, televised birthday party at Madison Square Garden where Marilyn Monroe comes out and sings this very, you know, sort of sexy version of happy birthday to him (laughs) as his wife sits in the front row and watches it, right? So, like, when you think about what makes reality TV reality TV, I think that, you know, especially American audiences have been engaging with, you know, that type of thing well before we had an official name for the genre. Hmm. Yeah. And as you were talking, it also made me think of this show with Regis. Is it what's his name? Regis Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Oh, with um. Oh, what's his with Robin Leach, right? Yes. Yeah, yes. yes. Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, which is totally the predecessor. <laughs> To Cribs, right? Of Cribs. I mean, ab- yeah, yes. absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> That's fascinating. Yeah. So now, you know, you mentioned a couple of things, right? So we still have the real world type kind of right. shows, but we have things like Extreme Makeover. We have the game shows. Are there other types of programming that kind of are also considered reality TV? I mean, I think anytime you're thinking of unscripted, I think something like An American Family, which was a docu-series that, a- that 
aired in the 70s, which was about, you know, sort of looking at it was like a domestic drama, you know, sort of seeing what was going on with the family and parents eventually split up. And one of the sons is gay and he leaves their town and he goes to New York. And I mean, it's a lot of scholars sort of cite that as like the pre-reality TV text. Mm-hmm. And yeah, but I think that when you start like pulling the threads of all of the things that make reality TV, reality TV, then I think we realize that a lot of shows actually sort of have fit into that for quite some time. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned earlier that you feel like something that's incredibly powerful about the genre of reality TV is like the relationships or parasocial relationships, I guess, in some ways that people form with the cast members. Mm-hmm. Can you say more about like why that is so powerful? What I think happens with reality television is I actually think it provides an opportunity for resonance and it provides an opportunity for empathy. And that's different for me, than identification. Identification is that character reminds me of myself because their profession is similar, they look like me, you know, something like that. But resonance Mm -hmm. is there's something about what they're dealing with that connects with me, right? I don't have to have anything else in common with them. I think about the Kardashians, right? Where even people Mm -hmm. who can't stand that show Whenever the sisters fight, I always notice this online that people will say, I don't even like the Kardashians, but man, when she hit her sister with the purse, like, yeah, I Mm. felt that. I know that. Right. And so Mm -hmm. I think that reality TV, because of the unscripted nature of it, you get a lot of those moments, these sort of small things that connect with us on an experiential level that in any other context wouldn't really make for good television. Like it it has nothing to do with the plot. They're not really good narrative beats. You get those moments and you get that in reality television because of the nature of what reality television does. Mm -hmm. And I want to just drill down a little bit specifically when we think about Black women in reality TV, right? And so, you know, Heather B. was, of course, on The Real World, but you are talking about like even before that, are there other instances where we can kind of trace the history of Black women in reality TV? Well, I mean, I think in terms of sort of before that, right, we have like Black women celebrities who are on game shows, right? I mean, we mm, we definitely mm-hmm. get that, right? I'm thinking of like yeah. Horn and, and Dorothy Damage being on these game shows, especially, you know, the ones that are focused on celebrity. And those are always sort of fun moments because you get to see them, you know, being silly and being, you know, I don't want to say being real because they're obviously still performing, but you get to see a version of them that's really different than their sort right. of, you know, very carefully curated Hollywood film versions. I actually think that if you go back to like the origins of cinema, like in the 1890s, you have these interesting moments um, where blackness is sort of both a side of performance and a side of authenticity. And, And so what I mean by that is, you know, early cinema, it wasn't like narrative yet. I mean, some things were sort of staged and little scenarios and some things were like, look at this black woman washing her baby, right? Because so much of it was about just the fascination with the medium itself, not necessarily with the content. And so I think in early cinema, you have this interesting slippage, which is relevant to black women in in reality TV today, where this line between are they being real? Are they being themselves versus are they performing? or Are they performing Mm -hmm. for the camera? that's not always clear. And that's a little blurry. And I would argue that's part of the pleasure in early cinema. And I think that's also part of the pleasure in contemporary reality TV. But that's also the kind of conundrum that leads to some of the debates that we have about representation of Black women on reality TV. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And so can you say more about that? I mean, because, you know, we exist, especially in the U.S., we know that there are stereotypes that people play into when they're, you know, casting particularly black women sure. for certain kinds of shows. And so can you talk more yeah. about like how some of those stereotypes do yeah. play out and the investment that the genre has in like casting certain kinds of black women? I think a lot about Omarosa from The Apprentice. Yes. When this topic comes up, you know, Omarosa, who is like, like an almost cartoonish, like angry black woman, kind of like, I'll put this in quotes, even though no one can see me, like black bitch type of character, right? Like, uh-huh. like a very like typical TV villain. And I, I always remember seeing her on an episode of Dr. Phil after her season had aired, where she was talking about the backlash that she got and, you know, all of this stuff. And he, and he was like, well, you did that. You have to take responsibility for yourself. And she said, which I thought was so brilliant, there were a lot of black women at that casting. They could have picked anybody they wanted to. What I presented on the show is exactly what I brought to the casting. So is it me who's sort of playing up a role that I knew would like get me on the show and get me airtime? Absolutely. But the producers didn't have to cast me. They didn't have to give me airtime. She pointed out that on the season following her, there was another Black apprentice cast member who barely got any screen time and they edited out all of her stuff, right? Mm. I think it gets really complicated. You mentioned Heather B. And one of the things Heather B. said pretty famously when I can't remember who it was, I don't think it was Tammy Roman, but it could have been. But it's sort of a later black woman on reality TV, you know, was like, oh, the editing, the editing. And Heather said, well, they can't use what you don't give them. And Mm. that's true. But also you can edit people in all kinds of ways, right? Mm. I think that audiences now are very savvy about that type of thing. But I think what we haven't necessarily talked enough about is that it's also about legibility. It's also about sort of the perceptions and the biases on behalf of the audience that they don't even realize they're bringing into their interpretation of the shows. And so an example I think of a lot is when The Real Housewives of Atlanta premiered, and that's the first Black cast housewife show at the time. Now there's Mm -hmm. Potomac, obviously, which just premiered, which was amazing. But anyway, (laughs) yes. but when Atlanta premieres, I remember reading like housewives message boards. And I, Mm -hmm. I saw the women being talked about in a way I had never seen with any of the white cast before. So they were referring to them as lazy. You know, they kept saying things like, oh, they're just so big, like, like things like that. Right. I mean, like things that were clearly sort of like stereotypes and tropes about black women that had nothing to do with the show that had nothing to do with this particular cast, but even saying things like they're lazy and they're gold diggers on a show that is literally about housewives, right? On a show Mm -hmm. in which when women have gone out and worked, I've also seen audiences criticize that as well, right? Uh, Right. There's a, a constant refrain from the housewives fans where people will be like, there's no real housewives on here. And then you get Atlanta where you have like, housewives housewives <laughs> and they're be, and they're called gold diggers you know and that right. that has everything to do with perceptions of black women regardless of what they do or don't do so you know i think these things get tricky i think editing plays a part i think obviously cast members have agency in in terms of what they choose to put on the show and, and how they choose to behave on the show but i also think that audiences bring their own readings and their own lenses and their own perspectives when they're watching yeah absolutely i mean and you know if i remember correctly real housewives of atlanta of course was not the first one but like you mentioned it was the first like kind of black cast yeah 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 but i feel like it was also the highest rated wasn't oh, it oh definitely definitely i mean atlanta has i don't want to get my numbers wrong but atlanta has pretty much since it premiered 
been the highest rated of the housewife shows. Everybody knows that. Everybody acknowledges that. Right. And yeah, they were, I want to say they were third. It was OC, New York, and then I believe Atlanta. I always get Atlanta and Jersey Atlanta. sort of inverted in my head. But but yeah, but from, I mean, just kind of out the gates, they, they were killing it in the ratings, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier, you know, like that a part of what is attractive about the genre is that people are able to kind of relate to the stories yeah. people share. But I wonder if there is something about, you know, like both the Housewives of Atlanta and Potomac mm-hmm. that non-Black audiences feel like they cannot relate to the stories being shared by these women. I mean, it's possible. There's an interesting thing that I notice among who I'm presuming are white Housewives fans. I mean, I don't know. This is just me going off of message boards and Facebook groups and Twitter, mm-hmm. where people feel very comfortable saying, I watch all the housewife shows, but not Atlanta or Potomac. And like, mm-hmm. and they don't seem to feel any kind of way about saying that. Do you know what I mean? Which mm-hmm. I think is, which is interesting, right? So, you know, I think that one of the strengths, though, of the housewife shows is that there's different ways in. And what I mean is that the housewife shows on Bravo, like Bravo has a very different approach, in my opinion, than a lot of the VH1 reality shows like Love and Hip Hop. And mm-hmm. what I mean by that is Bravo, they, they call it the Bravo wink. And it what really what it means is that when you're an audience member, you're always kind of on the side of the producers against the cast, right? Like there, there's an invitation through editing and through all kinds of things for you to kind of snark on the women or for you to you know, sort of like laugh at Mm. them if you so choose. And so Mm -hmm. I actually think that Atlanta and Potomac wouldn't be on the air this long if white women weren't watching those shows. White white women and white men. Like it's just that's just a fact. Like they wouldn't be on this Mm -hmm. long if that were the case. So I think that there are different ways in. Some people watch it and identify with the cast and root for various cast members. Some people sort of watch it to snark on the cast. I mean, I think that what we see, especially with Atlanta, and I think that the sort of popularity of Nene Lakes during the show and post-show is sort of evidence of the fact that as sort of like culturally specific of a cast member as she is, she has wide-ranging appeal and lots of people connect with her for all kinds of all kinds of different reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, when you think about, like like you said, like Potomac just premiered, like the new season. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like there is a distinct difference between like the first season of Potomac and the second season. Can you say more about oh, like sure. those differences? Yeah. I just think Potomac is the best of this. I just think it's the best of the franchise at this point. Like, I don't even feel like that's debatable, but that's... that's really? Like, yeah. Um, I, okay. I, I got to hear you say more about yeah. why. Okay. Here's what I think is great about Potomac. I think, first of all, Potomac is super culturally specific. I mean, you can have a black cast show that is not culturally specific to black people, right? Mm, so for mm-hmm. me, I love Potomac because it's rooted in a place, like it's rooted in like the DMV area, right? Like in DC, Maryland, Virginia, right? right. Those women have history that they weren't all flown in. You know, I mean, I think about Atlanta when Kenya Moore sort of joins the cast and she's great on the show, but it's also really clear that she was cast and she moves to Atlanta to film the show. And that's different Mm. than somebody who grew up somewhere or somebody who's lived there and made a home there. Right. I also think that Potomac has that great thing where the cast some members of the cast, they've known each other since before the show. They gel, they have history, right? You know, I'm so fascinated by like Karen and Giselle's relationship because, you know, when they fight, that feels real. That doesn't feel like just some on the show stuff. That feels like years of whatever kinds of experiences that, you know, have led to whatever tensions they have. And that always feels 
that feels more organic to me than Mm -hmm. what I think happens with some of the other shows in the cast are kind of like cobbled together and they don't have history. I think knowing that Potomac's, I believe that the producers who work on Potomac, because each of the housewife shows, they have different production teams. It's not like one universal team. Knowing Mm -hmm. that their producers are black, I think that there's a different handling of certain material than you see Mm -hmm. sometimes on like other shows. Like I just Mm -hmm. think Potomac is so great. (laughs) And I think each of the women is, there's such strong, cast members on their own they have such interesting dynamics between them mm-hmm. yeah i just I think it's fascinating mm-hmm. but you you asked about like the first season to the second season right, right? that was your original question mm-hmm. before i went off on that tangent <laughs> sorry yeah i mean i think what you see with potomac it's sort of like it's analogous to what happens with all of these shows right like the first season i think they're everyone the the cast and the producers everyone's trying to figure out what the show's going to be there's like a lot of exposition there's an emphasis on whatever the pitch was whatever the theme is right you see that in something i mean this is not black women obviously but like jersey shore right like if jersey shore is pitched as it's going to be this show about italian americans at the shore that first season it's like yes all they're talking about you know but that's also likely all the producers are asking them about is how do you feel about what it what does being a guido quote unquote mean to you right because that's like the focus it's the second season where everyone's kind of settled in a little bit but also i think when the first season is aired and they've seen themselves on television Mm -hmm. that now you Mm -hmm. have this slightly different engagement this is a horrible analogy but i was thinking like terminator 2 there's this moment where they talk about when the machines became self-aware like that's what kind of happens in the second Mm -hmm. season of a reality show is they're like oh i need to go get a better weave like oh i need to get a better wardrobe i need a glam team but also I need to think very carefully about what I'm doing on camera, what I'm presenting on camera and how that's going to play. And I also think that by the second season, the audience, we have our understandings now of who we think the star of the show is, right? And and how we understand mm-hmm. personalities and certain dynamics. I mean, I always like the first season of the show, but to me, the second season is like really where things start to get cooking. Yeah. Like when you really, really kind of get to meet the cast, yes. like the yes. real stories. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. More from my conversation with Dr. Gates after the break. Hey, ladies, it's Dr. Joy here. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month. It's crucial for us, especially as Black women, to focus on our heart health. We pour our heart and soul into every aspect of our lives, but often our own health takes a backseat. That's where release the pressure comes in. It's all about us. Black women seeing self-care as an essential act of self-preservation. Whether it's for yourself, your family, or our community, your health is invaluable. Let's help to get our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Here's how you can join in. Head over to iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. Let's make our health a priority. Visit iHeartRadio.com slash RTP today. Together, we can make a difference in our health and our lives. Join us and let's take care of our hearts together. Nowadays, a lot of these big companies pretend to care about our communities and issues with nothing more than lip service. State Farm is the opposite. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help educate in financial literacy give early career advice, and grow Black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something they care deeply about. 
They want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Farm understands that representation alone doesn't mean authenticity, that it takes a good neighbor to sponsor programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, and to fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of black and brown youth that to date participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now, online and in-store. Some of my favorites are the jewelry from Hey Maeve and the skincare products from Kaja. For the entire month of May, Join Macy's in supporting AAPI-owned fashion brands. You can show your support by donating online or by rounding up in stores to benefit APIA scholars. APIA is the nation's leading nonprofit organization devoted to the academic, personal, and professional success of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander students. Join me by rounding up your purchase to the nearest dollar at checkout to support API scholars an educational nonprofit. Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander owned brands at Macy's.com or in store. How many times have you arrived in Orlando and suddenly realized you forgot the kids? But then you remember you had no intention of bringing the kids. You are in Orlando to enjoy yourself. It's an amazing opportunity to have fun and experience all the fun Orlando has to offer. Sure, Orlando is known as the theme park capital of the world, but there's so much more to this destination. It's the place where adults can become kids again. And happy hour happens any hour with never-ending food festivals, fresh new dining experiences, and outdoor adventures from zip lining to its beautiful natural springs. And of course, fireworks every single night. Plus, you have loads of entertainment options, see unique neighborhoods, and can even visit their blossoming arts and culture. Orlando has everything for an amazing getaway with your loved ones or friends, including exciting thrill rides, lush, lazy rivers, and world-class golf and spas. Yes, there's more to see, do, and experience than you'd expect. In Orlando, anything is possible if you can imagine it. Plan your escape today and save at visitorlando.com. You may be aware that most people who are Black have O-type blood. O is commonly needed for emergencies and life-saving measures. But did you know one in three of us is a match for patients with sickle cell disease? You, along with the American Red Cross, regardless of your blood type, can help by donating blood. Every day, our blood saves lives and eases the pain for those living with sickle cell. When you donate blood, there is a direct, positive impact within our community. Right now, there is great need for blood donations in the African-American community. Every donation counts and makes a difference in someone's life. Donate blood at Red Cross to help save a life. Black excellence is in our blood. Visit redcrossblood.org slash ourblood to make an appointment now. So another popular, you know, kind of type of reality show are like these dating love kinds of shows. It does feel like there is like a particular kind of Black women that typically is cast for these shows. Sure. So I just love to hear your thoughts about like, you know, are you seeing the same kind of thing or are there varieties in terms of like people who are cast? 
Well, what shows in particular are you thinking about when you're talking about the dating shows? Like, the oh, Bachelor like Too Hot to like- Handle, mm. Love is Blind. Well, The Bachelor, you know, that's a whole, <laughs> whole kind that's of thing. But yeah, like works, that kind right? of show. Yeah. Right, right. Dating shows are not like, not the thing that like light me on fire in terms of a, a reality mm. TV fan. But what, I, what I'll say is, what I think is interesting about the dating shows, right, is we tend to talk a lot about reality TV in terms of like, the content, what's in front of the camera, right? Instead of thinking about networks and thinking about audiences and things like that. What's interesting to me about like The Bachelor and whatever has been happening for the past couple years with discussions about Blackness and The Bachelor is there isn't as much of a discussion about, well, who's the audience for The Bachelor, right? Mm. Like there's all of this kind of we had a black bachelor, but the woman he loves like did some weird racist patch and whatever <laughs> that story was. Right. But the but but to me it felt really clear that you can cast a black person, but if, for instance, your casting questionnaires never changed, if your approach to casting is the same, this wouldn't have been an, I mean, I don't want to say it wouldn't have been an issue, it wouldn't have mattered, but had The Bachelor been white, and I'm assuming that for the one black bachelor they picked, the other four, you know, possible bachelors were white dudes, right? This wouldn't Mm -hmm. have been, this wouldn't have made it to air, this wouldn't have been an issue, right? And so I think that, when you're talking about, for instance, like slotting black women into that formula, like the formula is the formula. And so you're going to get a specific type of black woman because they're not necessarily like, they're not interested in, in, I mean, diversity is a tricky word anyway, right? As we've learned this past year, but I mean, Mm -hmm. not interested necessarily in like a diversity of black women, right? They're interested in like a phenotypically black body to slot into whatever they wanted for that show. And I think dating shows tend to be much more formulaic than, I mean, I think dating shows, I think any kind of competitive reality show is really what I would say. Like competitive mm-hmm. reality, dating shows, but also stuff like Survivor, The Amazing Race, you yeah. know, versus candid reality shows like Real Housewives, Love and Hip Hop. I think that, that competitive reality shows tend to be much more formulaic and they tend to cast for type. Quite mm-hmm. much more often. And so I don't think it's ever really surprising that you see the same types recurring over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I want to kind of stick with your point around like really thinking about like the different networks and like who their audiences mm-hmm. are. Mm-hmm. You mentioned this idea of the Bravo wink, right? Like that yeah. we're kind of positioned to side with the producer. And yeah. you mentioned that you feel like that's very different from like what we would see on a love and hip hop. But yeah. I'm also aware that it feels like the own network is has sure. developed a, a different kind of like slate of reality TV. I'd love to hear your thoughts, maybe just about the differences between like what we see on, you know, which network. Yeah, I'm trying to, which which own shows in particular are you thinking of? So there's Put a Ring on It, Yeah, Ready to sure. Love, which I sure. think is an interesting dating show. To me, the people who are on that show are very different than what you would see on a right. Too Hot to Handle. Also, what are the other ones? Love and, Love and Marriage, Huntsville. Oh, that's right, that's right. So it's kind of in the vein yeah. of like a real housewives sure. loving hip-hop but not yeah. quite the same yeah so yeah so that's their sleep i mean so there's a couple things i think that different networks have just they just have different approaches to things right and so like i mean i always compare bravo and vh1 and i i compare those two very often because they both have this kind of like late night soap opera like thing that they mm. do right and so mm-hmm. bravo does that with the shows and vh1 does that with the shows too And to me, those are easy comparisons because you can see the tonal differences because so much other stuff is sort of similar, right? Mm. And what I mean by that is, so you have the Bravo wink, you have a thing where there's a clip from Potomac 
where where Wendy is she's like she's just had like breast augmentation surgery and so she's going to the doctor for a checkup she's talking about that she had a breast done but they cut to like a producer saying have you had any other work done and she's like if I did I tell you they cut back to the scene and then the camera scans down to her stomach and the clear implication is that she's had a tummy tuck right and like mm. that's the that's production kind of winking at us, the audience saying, you know, she's not telling the truth, right? Like that's what that is, right? Um, <laughs> right. This is all unbeknownst to her, right? She has no clue, right? Like that mm-hmm. this is the kind of communication that's happening between sort of like production and audience. VH1, right. by contrast, to me, the tone of VH1 is is earnestness. So, you know, I think a lot about, I think it's the first season of Love and Hip Hop Atlanta, where we got introduced to like Stevie J and Mimi mm-hmm. and Jocelyn Hernandez. And she, Jocelyn Hernandez takes a pregnancy test, you know, like in a bathroom stall and the camera crew comes with her. And people have talked about like, oh, that's ridiculous that she did that on camera. But what I'm always fascinated in is the camera work in that scene. The camera is focused on her face. And it's just this beautiful close up where she looks beautiful, but she also looks fragile and she looks like, you know, like anguished and sad. And it's mm-hmm. so close that you can see the tears coming down. Her, right? It's this moment that the camera is making us the audience, making us the viewer identify with her and connect with her. And for me, mm-hmm. that's always been this powerful moment because when in pop culture are we ever asked to feel sympathy for the side chick? When are we ever asked to sort of identify with the woman who's like sleeping with this guy who clearly has a long-term, you know, girlfriend and, and partner, right? And so that feels really powerful to me. I think that, like, if we're thinking about the show's on own, that's a different demographic as well, right? I mean, I'd have to sort of check the numbers, but I'd be curious about the age demographic, right? I'd be curious about who they envision their audience to be, and therefore, what are the issues? I mean, I think, you know, the fact that it's focused on marriage instead of relationships suggests a slightly older audience than what you might, Mm -hmm. what, what the assumption is for VH1, right? Which has to capture people from, like, 18 to 40, right? Whereas I think that own skew, I don't quote me on this. This is just, I'm pretty sure they skew. This is my guess, right? But like, but they they skew a little bit older, right? But I think that that tone of earnestness is still very much a part of how own does this. And part like, that's also the reputation of, you know, of the network. Um, Right. And so I, for me, it's really interesting to think about how things like that like shape the shows, shape how we view the shows, even as viewers, right? Like, what are we expecting to see if we know something's on VH1 versus own versus Lifetime versus MTV, right? Like we come to mm-hmm. it perhaps with different, you know, sort of reading strategies. Hmm. Hmm. You know, so one of the major critiques of reality TV, I think specifically as we think about like black cast members, yeah. is this idea of representation yeah. about like, oh, what do white people think right, when they right. see yeah. black women fighting on TV? Right. And so there's still yeah. like this centering of the white gaze. Yeah. And I think, you know, the argument can be made that like, I think a lot of like black projects have this burden, it feels like, right, like sure. to kind of speak for the entire yeah. race. Can you talk a little bit about yeah. that critique? I mean, I think that what we see with reality television is this intensified discourse that's really been happening since the dawn of cinema. Like whenever we have talked about the black image in popular culture, period, the burden of representation is always the discourse, right? Like the politics of representation is always the thing that we're talking about, right? And to me, I think when you're talking about pop culture, I think it's the wrong question, right? Because I think it's what, what it does is it narrows down the possibilities, right? It takes 
a few things for granted that I would actually push back against. One, it would it's that people enjoy things because they identify with it. The second sort of assumption is that television and pop culture serves, it's like a role model type Mm -hmm. of thing where like you see it and you want to imitate it, which has never been proven true, like anywhere. Mm -hmm. These are always like the underlying assumptions. And so if you start with those as presumed facts, that leads you down a really narrow path, right? Which is like, well, is this good or bad for Black people? (laughs) And there's, I think, like kind of a Du Boisian double consciousness, right? Which is, well, how does this make us look? And the Mm -hmm. implicit thing is like, well, to whom, right? I think when you're able to sort of cast that aside a bit as a consideration, not saying that that's irrelevant, that is a dominant way of analyzing media, I think is faulty because I think there's so many other things to attend to besides like the politics of representation, which most media studies scholars challenge anyway. Like mm-hmm. we don't think that media works that way. Mm-hmm. And we certainly don't subscribe to what some people call a media effects argument, which is that like media makes people do things. There's the example that I've I've used, you know, a bunch of times is, you know, scenes where people fight, right? There's a scene in from Basketball Wives where Evelyn Lozada gets so angry with someone that she like jumps up, runs across a dining table to attack this woman. And it's Mm -hmm. like jumps off the table and goes out. It's insane. And I remember when that aired and people said, well, if little girls see this, they'll think that's okay." And that's kind of like a logical leap isn't really grounded exactly in anything. Mm -hmm. Right. And what I would say is, well, why do we read it that way as opposed to fantasy, as opposed to emotional catharsis? Right. Maybe you don't watch that and and you're going to like go out and like run across the table. But maybe you identify really strongly with that feeling when you're sitting at dinner and someone's jabbing at you and they're making little comments and like you're trying to hold it together, but you feel like you could explode, which I think is that feeling like a lot of black women have had in their workplaces (laughs) and in different Mm -hmm. stressful, you know, there's something pleasurable about seeing somebody who has no bearing on your life be able to do that thing that you kind of secretly wish that maybe you could do, right? Mm. And so that's how I read a lot of that stuff. I also think that uh, the criticism of reality TV tends to focus on the most salacious moments and never on the quieter moments, which are the things that I actually think connect with fans more often. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. More from Dr. Gates? After the break. Hey, ladies, it's Dr. Joy here. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month. It's crucial for us, especially as Black women, to focus on our heart health. We pour our heart and soul into every aspect of our lives, but often our own health takes a back seat. That's where release the pressure comes in. It's all about us. Black women seeing self-care as an essential act of self-preservation. Whether it's for yourself, your family, or our community, your health is invaluable. Let's help to get our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Here's how you can join in. Head over to iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. Let's make our health a priority. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP today. Together, we can make a difference in our health and our lives. Join us and let's take care of our hearts together. Nowadays, a lot of these big companies pretend to care about our communities and issues with nothing more than lip service. State Farm is the opposite. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help educate in financial literacy, 
give early career advice, and grow Black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something they care deeply about. They want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Forum understands that representation alone doesn't mean authenticity, that it takes a good neighbor to sponsor programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, and to fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of black and brown youth that to date participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers. State Forum believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Forum is there. May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now, online and in-store. Some of my favorites are the jewelry from Hey Maeve and the skincare products from Kaja. For the entire month of May, Join Macy's in supporting AAPI-owned fashion brands. You can show your support by donating online or by rounding up in stores to benefit APIA scholars. APIA is the nation's leading nonprofit organization devoted to the academic, personal, and professional success of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander students. Join me by rounding up your purchase to the nearest dollar at checkout to support API scholars an educational nonprofit. Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander owned brands at Macy's.com or in store. How many times have you arrived in Orlando and suddenly realized you forgot the kids, but then you remember you had no intention of bringing the kids. You are in Orlando to enjoy yourself. It's an amazing opportunity to have fun and experience all the fun Orlando has to offer. Sure, Orlando is known as the theme park capital of the world, but there's so much more to this destination. It's the place where adults can become kids again, and happy hour happens any hour with never-ending food festivals, fresh new dining experiences, and outdoor adventures from zip lining to its beautiful natural springs. And, of course, fireworks every single night. Plus, you have loads of entertainment options, see unique neighborhoods, and can even visit their blossoming arts and culture. Orlando has everything for an amazing getaway with your loved ones or friends, including exciting thrill rides, lush, lazy rivers, and world-class golf and spas. Yes, there's more to see, do, and experience than you'd expect. In Orlando, anything is possible if you can imagine it. Plan your escape today and save at visitorlando.com. You may be aware that most people who are Black have O-type blood. O is commonly needed for emergencies and life-saving measures. But did you know one in three of us is a match for patients with sickle cell disease? You, along with the American Red Cross, regardless of your blood type, can help by donating blood. Every day, our blood saves lives and eases the pain for those living with sickle cell. When you donate blood, there is a direct, positive impact within our community. Right now, there is great need for blood donations in the African-American community. Every donation counts and makes a difference in someone's life. Donate blood at Red Cross to help save a life. Black excellence is in our blood. Visit redcrossblood.org slash ourblood to make an appointment now. So I'm really glad you share that, Dr. Gates, because I hear that argument all the time, but of course yeah. I'm not a media scholar. so. Yeah. 
I thought there was some truth to this idea of media effects, right? Like that people imitate kind of what they see. So where did that come from? I think there's a couple things. I'm sure that they're sort of a different strain of media studies scholars who are more based in like psychology and sort of calm studies who might make Mm. that argument, right? And I don't think that that argument is inaccurate, but I don't think it's accurate for this particular type of media, right? Like, do I believe that you can see so much violent content that you become desensitized to seeing violence? Sure, right? Like that's media effects argument, right? right? Do I think that if you sit and watch Evelyn Lozada run across a table that suddenly you're going to lose all your good sense the next time you have an, an argument with somebody <laughs> running across it? No, of course not, right? That's just silly. So I think that what happens is that gets applied across the board. And I also think it underneath it is a lack of credit being given to the presumably like Black audiences who are watching these shows. And I think you see that Mm. across all types of sort of art stuff, right? There's always this idea of like, even with literature, right? Well, you can't let these people have access to this thing, right? I mean, this happens, you know, I'm thinking of scholar Kathy Davidson's work about sort of the the tension um, and the anxiety around the development of the printing press, because there was this idea that like, you can't just have literature and news be widely accessible. What do you do with these uneducated masses? You can't just let them have access to information, right? It's that same idea that some people cannot handle, you know, access to content. Mm. I also think that, that, you know, when we're talking about Black people, right? I think that we understandably, because of the history of film, because of the history of television and the ways that those are connected to racism and racist imagery, that we have a healthy suspicion of what these images do, right? Like we know that D.W. Griffith's film, The Birth of a Nation, was used as a recruitment tool for the Klan. We know that, right? But there's a distinction between using a film as a recruitment tool and thinking that showing people that film is the thing that made them racist. And, mm. and that's not the same thing. I think we have to be really careful when we talk about how people engage with media because our real life experience is nothing like what those critiques say, right? And I've I've heard this before where some where someone has said, "Well, you're you're a professor, you understand this." I'm like, "You can't point to anybody that you know or have experienced who has like imitated a thing they've seen on reality TV, right? There's not some young promising girl on the South side of Chicago, where I'm from, who was like about to go off to college on a scholarship, but then she watched Basketball Wives. It's just, they treat it like it's reefer madness. You know what I mean? Like the sort of paranoia <laughs> <laughs> around these things that are going to ruin Black people. I think that there's very valid concerns about Black representation, particularly around Black women's representation. But I also think that's a re- that's, that's one lens. And there's multiple lenses with which we can be viewing these shows and talking about these shows. Mm-hmm. So in addition to Potomac, what are some of the other shows that you are really loving? And is there anything that you're excited to see, like somebody who has done something really different with reality TV that yeah. you enjoy? I mean, I got to be honest, like this past year, all of my viewing has just been shot because I've my my, my <laughs> I have five-year-old twin boys they were home from school for like a mm. really really long time there was not a whole mm-hmm. lot of viewing that was happening except for like Disney films but <laughs> I love Potomac like I love Potomac I love all the Real Housewives shows although I this year has been a weird time I think partly because of like COVID production things that have made 
mm-hmm. filming kind of bizarre, but also because they all are kind of trying to deal with racism in these very coarse, inelegant uh, ways, which which doesn't always make for good viewing. I I was a huge huge fan of Mob Wives when it was on mm. in like 2010, 2011. I thought it was one of the like the first two seasons of that show, I will always say, are some of the best television I've ever seen, scripted or unscripted. I just thought it was an amazing show. I was really into Jersey Shore for a very, very long time and still keep up with Jersey Shore. Mm-hmm. What am I excited about on the horizon? I'm kind of excited. This is like a, a, a broad comment. I feel like we're at this moment where reality TV has gotten very meta. You know, it's, it's not just the Real Housewives shows now. We have the All Stars Real Housewives show, which is going to air sometime mm. soon, right? Like we have that. Mm-hmm. We have shows that are like very self-referential, where we're talking about the show as a show, and we've seen that on a bunch of things, white shows and black shows, where they talk about production as part of, you know, as part yeah. of the show. I mean, Atlanta was like that, right? This season with the the bachelorette party and Portia and who slept with a stripper and who didn't, right? This whole <laughs> so much of the storyline yes. was about, hey, we thought we weren't filming, right? And we mm-hmm. have an understanding for what it means when we're not filming, right? And Kenya, you broke. I mean. That's fascinating to me. Mm, I wish mm-hmm. I had specific shows I said I was excited about, but like that as a thing, that as a theme mm, is fascinating mm-hmm. because my question is, well, then where do we go from that point? If we're at the point where the shows are now about themselves, the show is very much about filming the show. Like Kardashians is that, right? It's, this is their last season. The whole season is like, and we didn't know how to tell the producers. And so here are the producers. And we had them on. And let's watch the old footage. I mean, it feels to me like we are at this moment where something is going to radically shift because, like, where do you go from here? Mm-hmm. And so I feel like we're, you know, I've said, you know, in sort of other places that I would rather refer to reality TV as a mode rather than a genre. Like, it's a mm-hmm. way of engaging. It's a, you know, um, because there's such a diversity within reality TV. The genre seems like, you know, like to sell it short, I think. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to see like where this is headed now, you know, when we're at the mm-hmm. point where, you know, a magazine like Us Weekly is, it's mainly reality show stars in there. Those are the celebrities right. and the blurring of the line between who is a like, quote unquote, legitimate celebrity versus who is a re- reality celebrity feels like, what do you do with Bethany Frankel? What do you do with NeNe Leakes? Like, what do you, Mm, I mean, mm-hmm. my dad knew who these folks are. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, like, right, right. I mean, people who've never watched the shows know who they are. So I, I think mm-hmm. we're at this really kind of fascinating moment in terms of sort of seeing the collapse of high culture and low culture and different forms of celebrity. You know, we just came off a presidency of a reality TV cast member when we had the kind of big slate of Democratic candidates. And Bernie Sanders had Cardi B doing videos with him. You know, it was like this moment where I thought, are we still going to pretend like reality TV doesn't matter, right? Because Mm. we got one reality TV dude in the White House and we have Cardi Mm -hmm. B from Love and Hip Hop, like essentially campaigning, right? For Bernie Sanders, like this, something has changed, something has shifted. Mm -hmm. So I I don't know. I'm just curious to see 
what happens at this point. Yeah. Because I have like no predictions, honestly. Right. Right. And it seems like, you know, with the rise in social media, like, you know, people on TikTok are like amassing like some of the same numbers as a show on a VH1. Right. You know, so it it, to me, it's interesting that it almost seems like the new wave of reality TV, so to speak, might be existing like in a place like TikTok. I mean, I think we also are in this moment where even our understandings of what constitutes media has changed. Like when we say TV, like what are we talking? I mean, especially thinking about what's happened during COVID, right? I mean, there's two strains we could think about. One is the fact that social media has become so prominent that most of the beefs that are happening on these reality TV shows like originated on social media somewhere and the shows have to do that. They have to show screenshots of like Twitter and people's DMs and, you know, like, and that those are things that people are leaking. And then the producers are like, crap, we got to pull that into the show now, right? Like, (laughs) but they also, I think they also expect that we as viewers we're totally on Portia's Instagram and we totally saw that. Like they know that we know and right. you know, they can't just, they're reacting to stuff now. They can't just control. They can't just throw out the story and expect us to buy it. We're like, no, no, no. Cause I saw that they unfollowed right. each other. Right. And I know that happened two weeks ago. <laughs> um, but I think as you point out, the other thing that's happened, particularly within COVID when you have production in film and television, grinding to a halt or being severely compromised because of the pandemic, when you have the rise of TikTok, when you have the rise of social media influencers, and now we have this kind of additional breakdown, this additional blurring, right? You know, what, what is TV anymore? Is it like me sitting in front of like my actual television that's like wall mounted? Or is it me Mm -hmm. On, like with my smartphone, right? Like which right. one of those is the medium? Which which one is the sort of the dissemination of content? When you have, I can't think of her name, but a famous TikToker who then is on Keeping Up with the Kardashians as a friend of Courtney. Like what? I don't, oh, and I have no idea who she is. So I have to go to t- and find out, right? Like mm. it's it's. I think that what we're seeing is not just shifts that are happening in terms of the content that's on the shows, but even like the mediums, right? Like, is TV still going to be the thing? Are we still going to be tuning into E or Bravo or whatever? Or are Mm -hmm. we going to be sort of primarily on one of these social media or streaming platforms, right? I just, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't, it's it's a weird it, as a media studies scholar, it is a, it's a weird time. It's a, (laughs) it's exciting, but it's weird. Yeah. Right, right. Okay, so one last question before we wrap up, because I feel like we could talk about this forever. (laughs) As you were talking earlier about like the messages that surrounded the Real Housewives of Atlanta cast, and I don't know enough about like the positioning of what Married to Medicine was, but it almost Uh feels like that was like an an answer to like, oh, these women aren't doing anything, right? And so then we cast these Real Housewives type. I feel yeah. like women, but they're sure. actually, you know, some of them are actually physicians. Yeah. Yeah. I so mean, do you know I, anything about the positioning? Like, do you think that that was a, a response? I mean, look, I don't work at Bravo, so I can't <laughs> say, I know, I mean, I can't say definitively. That <laughs> right. Was, of course. If I had to guess when Real Housewives of Atlanta comes out and it comes out in 2005, 2006, um, and it comes out. Basketball Wives, which is not on Bravo, right? Which is on VH1, Love and Hip Hop. They all get lumped together. And you notice that when you start reading like newspaper critiques and stuff like that, they just lump all of them together, which is its own form of like kind of racist gendered like stereotyping, right? Because Real Mm -hmm. Housewives of Atlanta is a very different show than Basketball Wives. But 
I think that what happens is there's so much critique and there's so much kind of you know, uproar about that. But yeah, I absolutely think that married to medicine is supposed to be like the corrective, right? Or, okay, we're going to show mm. professional black women or, you know, or, and, and women married to, to doctors, et cetera, et cetera. It's interesting because a lot of times I've also noticed like people use the same stereotype around those women, which at some point, like, yeah, maybe it's the casting, maybe it's the production, or maybe it's the audiences. Maybe there's this way where like audiences are not ready to see Black women in all of their complexity, which means that you can be professional and also be kind of messy sometimes, right? And like, mm-hmm. that's that's being human. But I think that in the realm of media, where Black people and Black women have so often been portrayed as being inhuman or subhuman, human doesn't feel like corrective enough, right? We mm. want like Claire Huxtable. We want, you know, sort of the yeah. perfection of Olivia Pope who never has a hair out of place. Right. And I, <laughs> I think that it's an unfair standard, but I also think we close ourselves as viewers off from something, right. Which is sort of appreciating humanity and the humanity of black women in all of its nuance and all of its complexity. Mm-hmm. So Dr. Gates, what are some of your favorite resources for anybody maybe who wants to dig a little deeper into like all of the things you've shared today? Oh goodness. Let's see. <laughs> So I write about reality TV in my book, which is called Double Negative, The Black Image in Popular Culture. I recommend work by scholar Kristen Warner, who's, who writes about reality TV and casting. Also, the work by scholars Lori Ouellette and Amanda Klein, who write a lot about like reality TV in general. Amanda Klein has a really fabulous new book about it's a cultural history of MTV, which I think is like pretty great. Alice Leppard has a fantastic piece about the Kardashians and like capitalism and sisterhood. Those are the, I mean, just, I don't know, I'm forgetting a bunch of people. I'll be mad at myself, but those are the, <laughs> the people who come to mind. Uh, Lori Ouellette and Susan Murray have a, have a textbook that I use to uh, teach my reality TV class. And it's just a collection of fabulous essays by fabulous reality TV scholars. So. Yeah. I love it. Thank you for those. And where can we find you? You already mentioned your book, but what is your website oh, sure. as well as any social media handles you'd like to share? Yeah. So my website is www.raquelgates.com. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, like at Raquel Gates. Pretty sure it's the same thing everywhere. So <laughs> we'll find it for sure. That's where I am. That's where I am. Like, yeah. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with us today, Dr. Gates. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was so great to chat with you and be able to like wax poetic about all things reality (laughs) television. I'm so glad that Dr. Gates was able to share her expertise with us today. To learn more about her and her work, visit the show notes at therapyforblackgirls.com slash session 218. And don't forget to text two of your girls and tell them to check out the episode as well. If you're looking for a therapist in your area, be sure to check out our therapist directory at therapyforblackgirls.com slash directory. And if you want to continue digging into this topic or just be in community with other sisters, come on over and join us in the sister circle. It's our cozy corner of the internet designed just for black women. You can join us at community.therapyforblackgirls.com. Thank y'all so much for joining me again this week. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you all real soon. Take good care. Hey ladies, it's Dr. Joy. As women, we put our hearts into everything. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month. 
and it's time to focus on our heart health. Release the Pressure wants to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. During High Blood Pressure Education Month, let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. That's iHeartRadio.com RTP. Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also empower you with a sense of complete control? Enter Conair Girlbomb, your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results made just for women. From the ultimate girl bomb grip and professional grade blades, you don't have to compromise and settle for less. Conair Girl Bomb equips you with the precision and power previously reserved for men's grooming tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level with Conair Girl Bomb. Available at conairgirlbomb.com or a retailer near you. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Nowadays, a lot of these big companies pretend to care about our communities and issues with nothing more than lip service. State Farm is the opposite. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help educate in financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow Black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something they care deeply about. They want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Farm understands that representation alone doesn't mean authenticity, that it takes a good neighbor to sponsor programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, and to fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of Black and Brown youth that to date participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.